So today on Bill and Frank's Guilt-Free Pleasures, we have a chicken or the egg song. Was it Downtown Train that inspired Rod Stewart's love of model trains? Or was it his love of model trains that inspired him to cover this song? That's what we're kind of looking at a little bit. Well, not at all, but that's a, it's a philosophical <laughs> question that, that I, I believe needs to be asked. And also today, we're, we're really excited to have a guest with us today, uh, Rich Trefry, who uh, some of you may know from CBC Radio 1. Radio 2. Radio 2. CBC Music, as we refer yes, to it now. Yes, sir. Yeah. So Rich Turfry has been uh, good enough to join us today and, and talk about this song. And I know that you're on the radio and everything, but I can tell you're a little bit intimidated with our $25 mic stands and our towels for soundproofing. But uh, we, we encourage you just to be yourself here today. I'll do my best. This is much nicer than my setup at work here. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying a whole lot for CBC, are we? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, today we're, we're looking at Downtown Train by Rod Stewart. But before we talk about Downtown Train by Rod Stewart, we need to talk about Downtown Train by Tom Waits. Because he was the guy that wrote the song and uh, originally recorded it back in 1985. Right. And that was on his Rain Dogs album, yeah. which is his most popular album, at least until... Oh, it's hard to tell. And at least until Scarlett Johansson did her cover album, right? Right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly a classic. Yeah. Yeah. And often when people talk Tom Waits, one of, if not the first album that tends to come up in conversation... I think it's probably maybe the most accessible. Maybe so. Yeah. Maybe yeah. so. Our friend Eric Stewart, no relation to Rod, <laughs> <laughs> sent, I asked him, I sent him a text far too late last night asking why, he's a big Tom Waits fan, Yeah. and asked him to tell me why Downtown Train works so well on Rain Dogs. And he said, I think because in the first three quarters of the album, he makes the listener work so hard to find the melody that when you finally get to something that's even close to a radio song, it comes as a relief. Consonance is only pleasing in the presence of dissonance. I understood 70% of those words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think the simple way to put it is that Rain Dogs is kind of a weird record. And then mm -hmm. in, a, in a strange way, Downtown Train is a sore thumb. Because all of a sudden, here's like a, a pretty straight up standard you know, good old st structured pop song. Yeah. In the midst of all this weirdness. There's talk that this was sort of like rock star bait, that there's rumors that Tom Waits had finally got his publishing to himself, and that they said that this song was put out there to sort of... Um, Lure yeah. Yeah. The bigger artists to, you know, specifically for the purpose of, of, of covering it. Yeah. 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 And allowing him to take some time off. Apparently, the cover, one version I read was that allowed... Tom Waits to take a couple of years off to raise his kids. Yeah, okay. And then Rod Stewart's version is it put in a pool. Yeah, at his house, yeah. <laughs> That's about to be quite a pool if yeah. it's ni 1989 royalties, Yeah, I would think. Yeah. Well, I see you tonight. 
so I've read a few uh, Tom Waits biographies, none of which he, you know, kind of participated in, in the writing of, because I don't think that's really what he does. But some people very close to him believe that, that, that he was really doing that, that he was specifically trying to create cover bait, basically, with this song and maybe a few others that he's written. Just, you know, throw in the, the, you know, the potential hits out there, just waiting for someone to take the bait and make him some money. If Rod Stewart wants to cover one of our podcasts. Hey. I'm all in. Put on uh, American Songbook, like 47 or whatever <laughs> yeah. he's on right now. <laughs> but don't forget, you know, Tom Waits, sort of the first chapter, if you will, of his career was very different from where he ended up in the 80s with this trilogy of records, really, right? People talk about Rain Dogs, Swordfish Trombones, and Frank's Wild Years as sort of a trilogy where he really started to experiment and started to become the guy that ultimately he, he became and, and mm-hmm. sort of is now. But before that, in the 70s, although it was still a little different from, you know, kind of what might have been on the pop charts... He was more of a songsmith, less the experimenter back then. So he had this in him. He knew how to write a song. Always did, I would say. And so you have Bob Seger hearing this and saying, this is my, you know, my well, ticket. Be- before that, Patti Smythe did a cover of it, oh, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she right. She covered and recorded and uh, released it in 87. I made it on the charts. I think it charted at uh, 93. Of all the covers that I've heard, I'm going to say that hers is my favorite. That's tough for you, because I know Rod Stewart means so much. <laughs> <laughs> he has a, he has a you know, big spot in my heart. When I see you tonight On a downtown train All my dreams just fall like rain All upon a downtown Then that brings up the whole Bob Seger controversy, right? Yeah. So the the story that I read anyways was that Bob Seger recorded the song and he was going to record an entire album surrounding the song. And that was his idea. And he played it for Rod Stewart. And uh, then like a month after that, Rod Stewart just recorded Downtown Train just as a one-off to add on to a Greatest Hits compilation. And managed to release it before Bob Seger was able to. Yeah. So Bob's like laboring on this entire album, which is built around Downtown Train. And Rod's just like, no, here's a one-off and I'm going to release it on my my Greatest Hits here. So I don't know, like, so it it caused a rift between the two of them because they were friends. And now their foes. Yeah, they they say Bob Seger was genuinely ticked yeah. and kind of felt like Rod Stewart's move kind of ruined it for him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it was the end of Seger's had this big run until around 87, 88, I think. There were, he actually scored a number one with a song called Shakedown on the Beverly Hills oh, Cup yeah, 2 soundtrack. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> and I looked like, how is that number one? I remember hearing, I thought it was one of those awful throw-offs they put on movie soundtracks. Or yeah. like, oh, okay, there's one song, like, Shakedown. Who's that? Yeah. You know, as a kid. But it, I guess it went to number one. Yeah. I should probably re-listen to it. But he was seeing Downtown Train, I think, either as a transition or, like, as a big move for him as an artist. Mm-hmm. The story I heard is he told 
Rod Stewart about the song, but hadn't played it for him. Yeah. And get this. He told to him on a train. The plot thickens. <laughs> <laughs> and then layers upon yeah. layers. <laughs> now, Rod Stewart's version, and I, be- I kind of believe him. He's like, oh, I don't remember that. And yeah. it's believable to me that Bob Seger might have been pouring out his heart, and Rod Stewart, at this stage of his life, might not have been paying attention. close attention. But yeah. he's got, you know, he's he's got a life of uh, women coming in and out of different rooms. And his autobiography sounded like he was quite a wild man, even at his age then. Well, yeah. Here's a tough part. Rod Stewart was 44 years old when okay. he recorded this. Okay. We are 45. <sighs> I've missed my downtown train year. You did. And he was already, but Rod Stewart, by the time he was doing downtown train, had a whole entire career. Yeah. And this, I've had a career. Yeah, I've sure. Had, I've had a number of careers. I just keep losing them because of gross incompetence. <laughs> <laughs> are we familiar with the story of how Rod Stewart claims that he heard the song for the first time? I am not. I don't know if I am either. Well, I got it from his autobiography. Okay. And some mean-spirited writer online said his autobiography or whoever wrote his autobiography. Oh, okay. I was just saying he didn't write his autobiography. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Well, Rod Stewart doesn't write his own songs either, so why would he write his autobiography? Well, <laughs> <laughs> He can write a song. No, this he can't. I guess this, this sort of marked a moment where he changed directions a bit. Yeah. At least they talk about this. I'll just retell it. I was going to read okay. it, then I re- realized it's too long. So his manager came in, I think it was his manager, came in with a tape player. So this is 1989. Yeah. Plays Tom Waits' Downtown Train for him. And he says to Rod Stewart, holds his hand up and says, don't speak. Plays it. Rod Stewart's listening. Plays the whole entire downtown train. Tom Waits stops it. And then he says, don't speak. And he plays it again. Okay. Third time. Don't speak. Plays it again. Now Rod Stewart is singing along with it. He's like, I want this. This song has become mine. Or I want to sing this song. Yeah. And I want to put it on the album. But he's saying that's the first time he heard of the song. Okay. So, of course, Bob Seger's like, we talked about this on the train. On the train. <laughs> but Rod Stewart might have been thinking model trains or models in general. Yeah. <laughs> and so it was... Uh, that all makes sense yeah. now. Yeah. Models, model trains, well, trains. This is the There's perfect a song. There's diagram for, for <laughs> yeah. Rod Stewart's life. <laughs> Rod Stewart said his eight-year-old son came into the room and says, what was that awful sound? Who was that guy singing? And Rod Stewart would say, well... Tom Waits' voice, although he loves Tom Waits' voice, says it's an acquired taste. Yeah. Whereas Rod Stewart's is like a mild coffee. Yeah. It's it's kind of, it's a pop voice. Both got a bit of, whether you'd call it gravel or gruff yeah. or scratchiness, yeah. though. Yeah. There yeah. is a quality yeah. to a degree, you know. Yeah. Tom Waits is kind of cranked up to 11, but. Yeah. Yeah. Tom Waits is like a coal fire. You're right. Yeah. And uh, you could argue that at least, uh, you know, at times in his his catalog, um, that Bob Seger dabbled in a little bit of that yep. as well. Yeah. And so I've wondered if, um, I don't know, the question popped into my to my head when, you know, Tom Waits is laying this trap. Yeah. Was he thinking specifically like, you know, 
I'll, I'll set this one out there for the gravelly voiced bros. Yeah, because because wait the, till they hear this. Because at the time, like that would be eighty five, right? So like Bruce Springsteen. Oh is yeah, sure. Huge popularity, and then yeah. just follow the road down. There was Springsteen, um, Brian Adams, uh, Rod Stewart. Like they they all have that sort of mm-hmm. uh, gruffness in their voice. If they hear Tom Waits and think I can shine this up just enough. Yeah. <laughs> Tom Waits, the godfather of gravel. Yeah. <laughs> and the destroyer of friendships, I guess. Too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if he hadn't put that out, maybe Bob Seger would still be buddies with Rod. They would record an album, Rod and Bob. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So we got this. This is released on his Storyteller's album, The Greatest Hits. Yes. Yep. So I thought I kept looking for it in on an album. They released a demo of it or an early version of this on his Vagabond album from 91, the deluxe edition. Oh, okay. Yeah. This actually surprisingly different in a way that sounded a little closer to Tom Waits. Oh, okay. that's interesting. Yeah, Rogers, I haven't heard that. Yeah, his voice was ra- like, he had a bit more rasp. But it was like Fleming Rasp, which really yeah. disgusted me. As I listened to it, I realized I do have issues. It's clear that comes up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I turn the taps on if someone's using a bathroom too close to me. So it's. Uh... <laughs> you watch them as they fall. They all have heart attacks. They stand the corner of, but they'll never win you by. Will I see you tonight? So his early version actually sounded closer to Waits, or at least it seemed like something that he would been used to the Tom Waits version and then maybe was still in that zone. Yeah. Then I'm not sure how much Trevor Horn had to... I mean, he's the producer, Mm -hmm. but he takes it and... Brings it into full rod, or at least full late '80s rod. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We've talked Trevor Horn before. Yeah. What's uh? He's the guy in the buggles with the thick glasses. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. He was on. Uh, we talked about him with the Do They Know It's Christmas, yeah. right? Yeah. So, and researching the song, um, yeah, you're looking. You're looking. Rod Stewart does his version, and uh, the guy playing the slide guitar is Jeff Beck on this version and I diving like back deeper as far as uh, Wikipedia was going to take me. I didn't know that Rod Stewart played with Jeff Beck. Is it like post fa- yard birds. Was it in faces? Were they in? No, fa- it's no. Uh, before faces. Oh. Um, let me find it here. Oh yeah. Stewart, uh, he, he joined the Jeff Beck group, which is a super original name as a vocalist and sometimes songwriter. So uh, yeah, I guess he did write songs. Mm. You heard every picture tells a story. It's off on the side here, but every picture tells a story by Rod Stewart is phenomenal. Like, as an album. It's oh, okay. Like, when was that album? That 1971. 71? Okay. It's so good that it makes it tough to listen to his later stuff just because of Rod Stewart's capability as a singer and what direction he could have gone in. Yeah. That he, he picked a path that was easy money and an easy easy living, but he had... He had a lot of grit and... Uh, chutzpah. Chutzpah. <laughs> yes. He had a lot of chutzpah. You know, I don't know if this is the the right moment to interject this, but I find that um, 
you know, in the story of both the, the versions of this song that we're looking at today, the, you know, the guest guitarist really comes up as a big part of the story on both. Because famously, uh, Keith Richards contributed to the Rain Dogs album. Oh, that's right, yeah. But it was G.E. Smith who was the Saturday Night Live band leader who played the guitar on Tom Waits' Downtown okay. Train. Okay. Who, as far as, you know, guitar slingers mid-80s, you know, kind of would have been one of the, the top top guns out there. Yeah. And so, I, I you know, you got to think Rod Stewart was probably thinking, we're going to have to bring in a real hot guitar player on this one who, uh, you know, when you're talking legendary guitarists yeah you don't you don't get too far down the list before uh before jeff beck's name yeah. pops up okay cool i did not know that g because g smith i was always introduced like my only knowledge of him was honestly from the saturday night live band and that, that was it and i was just like who's this long-haired skeleton like, yeah, why right. is he in charge of the band yeah he was you know kind of a studio guy i think yeah. um you know, I, I'm sure he probably made some records as well, but he was a kind of a studio guitarist, played on a lot of records. I wouldn't be able to rhyme off, uh, you know, kind of the discography here and now, but I know he he played on some records. But yeah, interesting that, um, you know, they both brought in some, uh, you know, some big guns to, to play the solos yeah. well, that's cool. on these songs. When I think about those two songs, like the Downtown Train, Tom Waits version, I think about that guitar. Yeah. That guitar yes. really, it's... It's kind of crying and, and it makes you feel that sort of longing. And when I think of Rod Stewart's Downtown Train, I don't think anything about the guitar. I'd have to re-listen to think about that guitar again. I can yeah. just think of Rod Stewart saying, oh, baby, and, and ooh, and making sounds. And yeah. I, I'd never think about the guitar, but interesting. I wonder how Jeff Beck felt about it. Oh, there, buds. I think he he enjoyed yeah. it. Yeah, that's true. Okay. I know that growing up that I had heard Rod Stewart because um, – my my dad probably had an eight track back in the day or or like you know eighty one in the backseat of the Oldsmobile or whatever and we're he's he's playing something uh, by Rod Stewart but I remember my sister got Gasoline Alley which was his second album she got the tape for Christmas and it was like nineteen ninety nineteen ninety one so it would have been in around the same time that Downtown Train comes out and I'm wondering if that kind of inspired her to like look back at his catalog and start picking up uh, some of his music and stuff like that. But she, I remember her specifically getting the tape for Christmas and like my dad and my aunts are just like Rod Stewart's like, who's listening to him still? Cause he's been around since the mid sixties. Like he's been around for a good chunk of time. Yeah. And I would think a little bit before my time, I suppose, but the peak of his solo pop, stardom i mean i think uh you know the average person might think you know kind of do you think i'm sexy is maybe peak yeah you know rod stewart which at that point would have been the better part of 10 years in the rearview mirror sort of thing yeah that maggie may and yeah all that yeah right now you have right before it so 89 for me because i'm grade six then 
And I grew up listening to a lot of Elvis and Amy Grant. That was kind of, those were our two huh. big ones. So I wasn't. <laughs> There's a mix. Yeah, it was. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm just, I'm, I'm just picturing the duet in my mind right now. I know. <laughs> if only Elvis had lived long enough, yeah. he, he'd yeah. be, he'd definitely be doing Christian rock. So uh, <laughs> I know Rod Stewart through music videos. And so Forever Young came out before this. Yes. And then This Old Heart of Mine was like released yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, before yeah. this. Yeah. And this was on the greatest hits. And it was the second time he did This Old Heart of Mine. Yeah. I loved it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then this came out and it was like, wow, this is amazing. So, I mean, Canada loved it because it went to number one, I'm pretty sure, in yeah, Canada. Yeah, Downtown Train went to number one in Canada and then three in the States. And it also, like I started looking at his previous songs. And so in Canada, they often went to number one up to Downtown Train. So yeah. This Little Heart of Mine went to number one. I think Forever Young did really well too. So we loved Rod Stewart even in the 80s periods. Yeah. I wish I could recall this specifically, but sometime around this time as i recall my mom went to see him live okay yeah so she really um and i don't have memories of her being a big time uh, rod stewart fan earlier on Uh, Mm. funny enough she was actually a big a big elvis fan and um you know i can kind of remember some other stuff that she would have been into late 70s early 80s but i think funny enough this 80s era rod is where it really um Grabbed her. She went to see him live. I remember her coming home from the concert that night and telling the stories of him kicking soccer balls into the okay. into the crowd and you know loving that. So that would have been in Halifax. I wish I could remember specifically what year that would have been, but I'm thinking it was right around this time. Yeah, because yeah, I, I think Out of Order and then the Vagabond Heart. I, I think there was a bit of a maybe a bit of a resurgence. Like maybe there's a little dip and then a, yeah. a little bounce back at uh, at the end of the 80s, right? In his autobiography, he talked as though he had to prove himself with Downtown Train. But I don't get it at all because he already had Forever Young and a couple other songs in the tank. So if it's proving yourself a year after a hit, seems weird now in our era of 2023 where, I don't know, yeah, you could right. go years without doing something or still kind of an it. But yeah, he claimed it, it sort of gave new life to his career in a lot of ways this period pads his like live performance career where oh, as yeah. he goes through this is now he's becoming this this touring thing that can mm-hmm. make tons of money yeah i think what's what's crazy to me right now is like from the beginning of his career to like when he released this album his uh, the storyteller is that's that's a smaller period of time than it is from the release of that album to now and he's still releasing music yeah. yeah. It's been 30 years, well, 33 years now. Holy cow. Since that album came out, since that, that first Greatest Hits package. Right. And he was younger than us then. Yeah. Than we are. Yeah. Now? Yes. You got that math right? I think so. <laughs> You're the math teacher. I'm working through this. I got <laughs> issues. It's okay. <laughs> so... Listening to like um, like Rod's version versus uh, Tom's version, and I'm going to speak about them using just their first names because I feel like they're familiar to me right now. <laughs> and and even the the covers that uh, like Patty Smythe did, and then because eventually Bob Seger did release a cover version, I think in 2011, and he changed it. He yes, didn't like his version, so all the complaining, he's listened to it and said, oh, I don't like it, and then changed it and did a new vocal and put in backup singers. Yeah. Oh, Can't you hear me 
So I, I found the Patty Smythe and the Bob Seeger version um, a little more uh, faithful to the original in terms of the music. The, it starts off with a guitar, warble, wail, whatever it is you want to call that. But Rod Stewart comes in, it's a little softer, a little more orchestral. And in my mind, what he's trying to do is he, he he's starting it slow and he's just, he's going for that build because he knows how to write a pop song. He knows how to, to well, maybe this is Trevor Horn, right? Right, but, but this uh, this is what his voice needs to yeah. climb that mountain. Yeah, so it, it's it starts off slow and and it's really soft and everything, and then by the end, it, it like he's full rod. But yeah, the the arrangement on uh, on Rod Stewart's version is, is the most, for lack of a better term, radio friendly. Yeah. Cut down on the intro, kind of you know get to it, get into it a little quicker, um, you know kind of sand off some of the edges a little bit. Although, strangely, the long sort of coda at the end, which is unusual for a, a hit song. I'm, I'm guessing maybe when it was played on the radio, there might have been some fading going on before right, yeah. Oh, yeah. that whole thing. Uh, the DJ's talking over the end of the song. Yeah, because yeah. that is a little unusual, I must say. That's, that's the part of the song that surprises me. That's where this version gets almost a little bit experimental, because it goes on so long. Yeah. We were listening earlier. It's like, this is almost weird how long this yeah, is going it's, on it's, for. It's almost uncomfortable. <laughs> it was an awkward moment for all three of us. Yeah. <laughs> but otherwise, it is a very, you know, polished and, and cleaned up uh, arrangement of this song. As we discussed earlier, the, the spotlight is somewhat taken off the guitar. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, Rod Stewart's very much the star of the show on this version of it. And it really does build in a way that uh, Tom Waits' version doesn't quite, you know, have that steady upward It doesn't have, it doesn't trajectory. seem like it has a peak. Right. It, it just sort of, it, it's that, it's, it's a slow burn. Yeah. Yeah, Rod Stewart's version, like when you hit that m- musical bridge, and I'm assuming it, it's a bridge, right? Yeah. Like you're a musician, you can explain. Let's call do it you, a bridge. Do you know what a bridge is? Can you explain what a bridge is to us? I usually just simply think of it as like, a you know, sort of an instrumental passage in a in a song that is you know kind of in the middle of the song rather than at the beginning or the end so it's usually bridging between say a, a verse and a chorus or a chorus and a and a next verse or something something to that effect but yeah usually just like an instrumental passage in the middle of the song okay so i th- i think we were right in every every time we were asking what a bridge was we finally have a succinct answer we have an answer <laughs> we will now be just hitting when you ask this question next time we'll just hit play yeah yeah <laughs> or we just end the podcast i think that was the whole idea of the podcast <laughs> was to determine what a bridge was yeah this will be the last episode of uh... <laughs> well thank you rich for being on the last episode of bill of ranks Feel three pleasures <laughs> But uh, but that bridge because it, it, it's climbing, climbing, climbing the entire song. But that bridge, like it takes it up like a, a steep ramp at yeah. that point, and then it comes to that end where he yeah. goes full Stewart. I've written down here about my misheard lyrics. I was reading the lyrics. I'm like, I, that's not what I heard when I would listen to the Rod Stewart version. Yeah. And I think the reason is in the Tom Waits version, there's this loneliness, longing. I don't think it's creepy, but it's certainly about someone watching somebody else and waiting to see someone he's in love with, but is never going to talk to on a train. 
Yeah. And he's a loner who sits on a train waiting for the same person to come on that train. And he's there kind of following her and whatever life she leads. At least that's what I had in my head. And all the other people, the Brooklyn girls who are there going off to go out to clubs or whatever was going on then. That's that's what I hear when I hear the Tom Waits version. Now, the Rod Stewart version, I, I have no sense that this guy's a loner or that there's any chance that she's not going to get together with him. So, when I read the lyrics, I just hear it differently. Like, there's a line. So, the beginning was, outside another yellow moon has punched a hole in the nighttime mist. I climbed through the window and down to the street. I'm shining like a new dime. That's Tom Waits. But when I was a kid, I don't know if you thought this, but I'm like, oh, Rod Stewart, he's shining like a new diamond. Because, That's what I heard yeah, too, yeah. Because Rod Stewart's a diamond. I'm, I keep listening back and I only hear diamond because it's Rod Stewart and he's worth a ton of money. Yeah. <laughs> but the dime is super depressing. Yeah. So this is the Tom Waits who makes rings out of spoons, right? For somebody to get married, whereas yeah. Rod Stewart has big diamonds. Yeah. Outside another yellow moon a hole in the nighttime, yes I climb to the window and down to the street I'm shining like a new dime Outside another yellow moon Has punched a hole in the nighttime mist I climb to the window and down to the street I'm shining like a new You know, and in, interestingly, um, although you could say that in the context of, of the Rain Dogs album that Tom Waits sort of, you know, cleans things up a little bit on Downtown Train, we talked about it being a bit of a sore thumb. And it's true, you, you see it in the lyrics as well as, as, you know, the instrumentation that's happening, the arrangement and everything else. But there, you know, just a few little... Tom Waite-isms in there, even the mere mention of a carnival in the lyrics. And, yeah. you know, maybe this comes from, you know, knowing too much about these these two individuals. I can imagine Tom Waits hanging out at a carnival. I don't picture Rod Stewart kind of <laughs> roaming around a fairgrounds, you know, just so soaking up the, the vibes. Um, and then, uh, although... Tom Waits is a is a California guy. He spent some years in New York, uh, you know, recording these albums and exploring some, you know, new musical ideas. Um, and so knowing that he was living in, in New York at the time, him mentioning the Brooklyn Girls and so on, like, yeah, she, you know, checks out. Somehow, I don't know, like, you know, Rod Stewart in, in Brooklyn, you know, it's kind of scrappy Rod Stewart. You know, the performance is, is great, and he delivers, and so it's believable in that sense. But when you really kind of get in there and you take a close look at the lyrics, I don't know if I'm buying, you know, first of all, Rod Stewart, I, I'm always imagining a subway train rather than like a commuter kind yeah. of, you know, interstate train or whatever. Rod Stewart on, you know, riding like, you know, the... You know, the F train or, you know, whatever, New York. I'm not, I don't see it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, let alone in Brooklyn. Unless and, he, like, uh, rents it out for himself and that's about it, right? Yeah, right. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, maybe. And uh, and then, like I said, uh, you know, at the hanging out at the carnival grounds, you know. Yeah. Not, not so sure, but yeah. uh, but yeah. it is it is interesting. And to me, that's the one real Tom Waits tell in the lyrics, you know. Yeah. Because uh, he had a thing for, 
for all things carnival. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, and it, it comes through on that Rain Dogs album. Oh, too, sure because does. There's a lot of like carnival sounds on yeah, it, right? Absolutely. And it's a like the dark corners of a carnival, even yes. though I imagine everything's circular yeah. in a carnival, but yeah. there's always darkness somewhere in a corner. Yeah, that's and where the Tom, freak shows Oh, the sideshow oh, yeah. is oh, where, yeah. that's where Tom's hanging out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This day at the carnival, they'll never win you back. The opening line is something that I really love. Outside another yellow moon has punched a hole in the nighttime mist. And I, I like that. It, it, it's very similar to me to um, uh, Bruce Coburn's Lovers in a Dangerous Time, mm. where he says, you got to kick at the darkness till it bleeds daylight. Like, it's very visceral, the 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 lyric. And you can imagine it. You can see it happening. You can see an, an action actually happening. You can, yeah. like, see the moon punching through the mist or it's almost a violent act, but there's beauty in that violence. It's a beautiful line. I mean, this is, there's real poetry in these lyrics and I would say more so than your average pop song, even by eighties standards. And uh, so I must say um, for me, for as much as I admire Tom Waits as a, as a pop song to see a few times in his career, his songs being covered and being turned into hits surprises me in a real pleasant way because, um, you know, often you don't get this level of poetry in a number one hit pop song. Yeah. Maybe from a Bruce Coburn, the odd person who's that kind of writer. But, um, and so maybe this really says something about, you know, Rod Stewart's talent that he's able to make something, um, that, you know, might otherwise be utterly inaccessible for most people in Tom Waits' hands turns into as big a hit as it could possibly be in Rod Stewart's hands where everyone loves it. Yeah. Basically. This is why I have no animosity to this song. Like, I might make fun of Rod Stewart once in a while, yeah. but I will listen to this song the whole way through. Oh, yeah. And yeah. even those last 40 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there is something about him bringing Tom Waits to the masses. So, for me sure. as a kid, I didn't know Tom Waits. He was terrifying. There's a video with him on a tricycle yes. and he had devil horns. I don't want to grow up. Yeah. I did. I couldn't. I just turned the station. I couldn't watch that. But this I could. And then yeah. years later, when I was I grew up sometime in my mid thirties, I finally was ready to listen to Rain Dogs. Like, oh wow, this is fantastic. But it really, if it wasn't for this, I wouldn't have got there. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it's worth mentioning. I don't know about you, Frank, but I, um, I only like you. I only became. A Tom Waits fan later. I heard the Rod Stewart version first. I became familiar anyway with the Rod yeah. Stewart version before I did the Tom Waits version. Yeah. Is it the same for you? Oh, same here. Yeah. Yeah. yeah 100%. I kind of knew who Tom Waits was a little bit, but uh, really didn't get into it, um, understanding him. Or I don't, still don't think I understand him, but, uh, <laughs> but gaining uh, some like, appreciation. Yeah. Gaining yeah. an appreciation until our, our friend uh, Eric uh, Stewart. Um, like, cause he's such a big fan and like he plays stuff and he's just like, oh geez, this is good. And you listen to it. It's like, oh geez, this is really good. So you start yeah. digging into it a little bit more. You were talking about that misheard lyric and there's another one that, um, in the Rod Stewart version, I always heard it as when I see you tonight on a downtown train. Yes. And, when? and, and that was a certainty. It's like, when I see you, because you're going to be there and I'm going to be there, but the line, will I see you tonight? It's it a just, whole other thing. Oh, it, it turns it right around on its head, right? And it just makes it even more sad, I guess. Right. It's, more longing. and it, it's, But it's so beautiful. Chris, 
Christmas night while I was listening to this song. I'm like, oh, I kept hearing, seeing Will. I'm like, no, it's got to be when, like you said. I wrote down, Rod Stewart's going to win the girl. So when he sees her, he's going to see her. And, they, and they're going to be together yeah, if they're it, not already. It's, it's a certainty. Whereas with the Tom Waits version, I absolutely assume he won't. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, exactly. He's never talked to her. Yeah. No. Yeah. yeah. This yeah. is, there's much more distance. Mm-hmm. Well, I see you tonight. So second verse, maybe second verse, it's short. The downtown trains are full, full of all them Brooklyn girls trying so hard to break out of their little worlds. And then this line here kind of confuses me. You wave your hand and they scatter like crows. They have nothing that'll ever capture your heart. They're just thorns without the rose. Be careful of them in the dark. The downtown trains are full. Try so hard to break out of their little worlds. You wave your hand and they scatter like crows. They have nothing that'll ever capture your heart. They're just thorns without the rose. Be careful of being in the dark. Rod Stewart's pronunciation of dark really throws me off whenever I'm saying like he, I, I kind of wish Trevor Horn's like no could you say dark again it's kind of a weird art yeah. thing going on yeah so who's scaring my crows are they the Brooklyn the, girls the, yeah I think so because they don't have anything to offer oh that this is my take on it like sorry not that they don't have anything to offer but there's nothing of interest to him at that point because he's you know looking for that girl that he's looking for on that downtown train Okay. That's my take. I don't know. You guys? I've always just loved the image. And like you were saying with the uh, the first line of the song, it just really conjures a strong image in my mind. I've never really been able to get past that to even think about it too much. I just love that image. Yeah. Rod Stewart said that Tom Waits can do imagery so well as a songwriter. Yeah. And then Rod Stewart's like, well, I have to work on that, which is classic <laughs> Rod Stewart sort of like, ah. I got to work on that. It's like, I try. And then he said, I just write from the heart. That's yeah. what I do. I'm like, you're such a... <laughs> this is why I love Rod Stewart so much, because he's all feeling. That's all he's I all am. all feeling. But the thorns without the rose, it's such a great image. And I, I like what you said, Rich, is like, just the image being there is enough. Yeah. Like, I can't yeah. really pierce through it. There's a little bit of thorn imagery there, but yeah. <laughs> I don't... Uh, I don't totally know, but that what he paints there is something that's true. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. If that makes sense. I think so. Okay. And there's a little line before where it was, if I was the one you chose to be your only one, oh, baby, can you hear me now? Can oh, you yeah. Hear me now? Yeah, so, yeah. With Ben Rod Stewart saying, oh, baby. Yeah. It's not like Tom Waits saying, oh, baby, where it's just the, sort of the walk away from it. But yeah. His old baby's like, okay, so you're getting, you're getting, you're getting, with you're them. getting the girl. <laughs> oh, if I was the one, you chose to be your only one, oh baby, can't you hear me now? Can't you hear me? Well, then, then you jump into the, uh, the, the chorus, which is, you know, will I see you tonight on a downtown train? Every night, every night is just the same on a downtown train. I like I like it. It's it's a good little course. It, it it does its job and everything. And that question of will will I see you tonight? I I really like that 
reading through the lyrics as opposed to listening to the lyrics and understanding what the actual lyric was. It, like I said, it it just adds that longing. It's, um, in my experience, rare, touching on what you just mentioned, Frank, where reading the lyrics of a pop song gives you a whole other rewarding experience. Often, uh, you know, otherwise with a lot of pop songs, it really does n- nothing to heighten your experience of it. If anything, it might even drag it down. It's like, oh, these lyrics are terrible. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it's all just, you know, a lot of songs are just carried by the melody. And the st- melody of the song is very, very strong as yeah. well. And I think that's what makes... I think you could argue anyhow the uh, chorus of this song memorable is the melody of it is so great. Yeah. But um it's it's true that uh, there's a lot of people out there who don't even really pay a lot of attention to lyrics, but if you know you're one such person and you do decide one day to to look them up and you you read them, you know, you're going to be floored whereas um a lot of pop songs they're not really going to give you a lot to sink your teeth into, but yeah. there's a lot going on here. Well, I mean, you would have been similar to us like Today, like with everything streaming and, and, and all of that, you you just listen to songs. But when I was really getting into, into music in the 90s, you had CDs and you had CD cases. And that was my favorite thing to do was open up, check out the artwork and follow along with the lyrics, with the, with the songs yeah. and uh, and try and experience them that way. And uh, you're, you're absolutely right. You, you gain a, a better appreciation of the, of the song. And I think that, you know, I, I, I lament that a little bit for, you know, sort of younger generations today although it's easy enough you know everything's on online it's easy yeah. enough to google lyrics but it's not always necessarily a part of the experience when you're when you're streaming it's not right there uh like it is if you're um you know kind of you know playing a, a, a cd and you have the case in your hands or for that matter uh, you know on an lp or something yeah. like that there's that function if you're using apple music where uh, if you you know tap a couple of things and you can bring up the lyrics, but yeah. it's, it's sort of a little bit of effort to do. But uh, I sometimes wonder if young people are really, um, you know, spending time with lyrics of songs the way we used to automatically, because the experience you described, I think, was a fairly universal one. I think everyone loved doing that. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And and there was always the, because there, there are different types of CD cases too. Like there's the there's the book, then there's the ones that would just fold out fold. lengthwise, and then there was the ones that folded out almost into a poster, poster and then sure. trying to fold those back where it was just <laughs> terrible for <laughs> Never me. Never get it right. Fully, completely. I remember looking like, what? Oh, come on. That's not how you put lyrics on a sheet. Yeah. Don't be crazy. <laughs> and then R.E.M. would come out with like a booklet, and then you just realize they're Michael Stipe pictures, and that made me so angry. We're like, you could have put the lyrics on. I still don't know what you're saying. I don't think he wanted you to know what he was saying. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's that, a whole other discussion right yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Frank. We hitting every single lyric on this song. Are we gonna. Well, I, I, the there's the the third verse. We can we can yeah. go. We talked about it a little bit, but uh, it's like the I know your window and I know it's late. I know your stairs and your doorway, which I think could be taken as creepy. But again, there there's there's. From Tom Waits, like from his perspective, it's like, I don't find it creepy. I just find it sad. Well, I know your window, and I know it's late. I know your stairs and your doorway. I walk down your street past your gate. I stand by the light of the 
It makes me think a little bit of Taxi Driver, a little bit, okay, which, yeah. which is a little more creepy. But when Rod Stewart says it, I'm like, well, of course, because he... Yeah, he's because he's, he's, he's going he's, there. He's going there. He's, he's, he yeah. dates her, yeah. yeah. I know your window and I know it's late. I know your stairs and your doorway. I'll walk down your street and past your gate. I stand by the light of the four-way. Now, in my mind, I see those lines, that verse, and it adds a little intrigue to the song because I start to wonder, oh, is there actually a bit of an established relationship here? He's been to her house. Maybe, you know... There's more going on in this relationship yeah. than first meets the eye. Maybe. It's just, in my mind, raised as to, as a question. Could go either way. Maybe there's more familiarity there than we've been led to believe to this point. Or, yeah, there's, it, it, is a, it is a little creepier yeah. than we first thought where he's, uh, you know, the, the creeping is going beyond the train. And it's, yeah. it's uh, you know. So we, we kind of... Uh talked about this a little bit before when we were listening to the song but uh what's your favorite part in the song the rod stewart version well i'll say something controversial okay and let me give you a little context before i say this i'm dropping a bomb here (laughs) i know you know this but you know i'm a tom waits fan yeah and i like a lot of his recent work Although I would probably say my three favorite Tom Waits albums is this, you know, trilogy that, mm-hmm. you know, is, is sort of before us here today, Rain Dogs, Swordfish Trombones, and um, Frank's Wild Years. Which I don't think he really captured all of my wild years in that album, but, you know. Uh, who could? Yeah, no, honestly. really, yeah, in, in, <laughs> in, in, in one album. But I'm the type of guy... You know, the weirder Tom Waits gets, the more I like him. Yeah. And if, you know, if I was listening to, uh, I hate to I hate to say this, but if I'm listening to Rain Dogs in the car, there might be days where Downtown Train comes on, I'm, I'm, I, I might skip it. This is shocking. Wow. So, where I'm going with this, my point is, me being the kind of, you know, music listener that I am, for as strange as it is, the unusual coda at the end of Rod Stewart's version is where it starts to get interesting for me. It's like, oh, what's going on here? Okay. He's got a little trick up his sleeve here. He's not the one trick pony that, you know, maybe you might paint him as. It's like, oh, well, now wait a minute. And was he inspired by Tom Waits to, you know, kind of, you know, explore some more, you know, interesting terrain at the end of the song? And maybe it's safer to kind of, you know, put it at the end. Right, right. But, um, I get excited when something makes me raise an eyebrow a little bit. Yeah. I, I like when someone's willing to uh, go there a little bit or experiment a bit. So although I can appreciate what he did with the song, where he took it, that he turned it into a hit, it's interesting to you know can compare and contrast his voice, his vocal chops to Tom Waits. But um, 
I, I'm actually intrigued. If I if Rod Stewart walked in the door right now and I could ask him one question about the song, I'd be like, "What's the deal with the outro on the yeah. on the song?" To me, that's super interesting. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. most controversial moment in our podcast history i think there no one has ever picked the the final coda yeah right my favorite part of the rod stewart song is the part he's not singing well so, how do you like them apples yeah. <laughs> well that's my favorite part too except it's that that musical bridge okay oh is it after the carnival and heart attacks is that really yeah good? okay yeah yeah because there's a like a 30 second bridge there and uh, the guitar's coming in, and it, it's a little orchestral and cinematic. Yeah, sure, absolutely. And like it was always climbing, 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 but that's when it gets steep. And I, I, I should also mention I'm, you know, I'm a big time, you know, Jeff Beck Yardbirds fan. Uh, you know, just as in terms of pure riffage, I'd probably pick him over a lot of guys, if not everybody. And so his inclusion on the song that's pretty cool to me as well. Yeah. yeah. favorite part i gotta say um when he says oh baby can you hear me now can you hear me now i think that really is it i just assumed he said it over and over throughout the song he must have yeah i like the rod stewartisms yeah 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 Yeah. well it makes it his own that's exactly what i was about to say yeah that's that right there is 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 where he it's interesting the story you were telling uh when he was first listening to it and there a moment came where he felt that he he was taking ownership of the song and right there is where he sort of delivered on that promise yeah so we usually jump into categories towards the towards the last third of the uh, podcast so i've I've prepared rich um so we do our mixtapes yeah. You have a mixtape. I'm going to let you guys go first and then uh, I'll, I'll finish things off because I have about 12 songs that I potentially oh, wow. could put okay. on Okay, I got a low list, but I like a guest going first. And we didn't mention this at the beginning, but Rich Terfry is AKA Buck 65. Yes. For our listeners, especially our Canadian listeners who will, who will know. And so when I hear the word mixtape, sure. No, uh, you know, not. Like, I'm intimidated in a good way. <laughs> well, and I'll throw out a little known fact. I, too, covered a Tom Waits song. Oh, did you? Once. I should say maybe more than once. But uh, in 99, I released an album called Man Overboard. And the original, it might be most fair to say, demo version of that album included a cover of Singapore by Tom Waits, which okay. didn't make the final cut of the album. And then live, uh, I used to do a very deep cut tom waits song called tabletop joe okay but um anyhow yes this is this is my whole thing putting these mixtapes together okay yeah Perfect. And, uh, awesome. so i gave it some thought should we jump into it here oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah um i find and i i bet you guys have, have found the same thing is that this song routinely pops up 
on these lists, and there are a bunch of them on the internet, of songs you didn't know were covers. Now, to me, that's an interesting enough category. God knows I've talked about that sort of thing Mm -hmm. on my radio show plenty. But with this particular case, there's more to it than just that. I think it fits into an even smaller category. And I wish there was more of this where you have here a big time bona fide mainstream pop star bringing into, you know, the spotlight and the mainstream consciousness, uh, what at best we might call sort of a cult figure. Okay. Yeah. Right. Tom Waits. I mean, you know, he's not nobody, but, uh, and and in particular, when we're looking at an album like Rain Dogs, you know, you ask the next person that walks down the street, Hey, ever heard Rain Dogs? I'll put 50 bucks on them saying no. So, you know, he's, he's not... I don't know if you could call Tom Waits a household name. I think of him, and in particular, the parts of his catalog that I love the most. To me, I almost think of him as an underground-type character, certainly a, a cult figure. And if not in the strictest definition of it, if you look at his body of work and maybe what inspired him and what he was interested in, he's certainly coming from the deeps, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. He. Uh, and uh, so maybe at best you could argue that he was an experimenter and whatever else who had more success with it than a lot of others. But nevertheless, I think that here we have a case where sort of, I'm trying to think of the most fair word I can use, but maybe a, a, a slightly more fringy musician is is being brought in, into the, to the mainstream. Because a lot of the other songs that you would find on those lists of songs you didn't know were covers aren't necessarily that. Um, trying to think of a good example, but if you look at I Love Rock and Roll by Joan Jett, the Arrows, who wrote and recorded the original version, were a fairly successful band in their own right. Mm-hmm. And you see a lot of that on those sorts of lists. So this situation got me thinking of other cases where this was the case. And I really wish that there were more examples of it. Cause to me, it's super interesting and exciting. Mm-hmm. And more often you see it the other way around where, and hopefully this isn't too flippant a way to put it, but where like an indie band will do kind of an ironic cover of some big pop. Yeah. Yeah. That happens all the time. Yeah. Sometimes it makes me roll my eyes, but this is much more interesting. Mm-hmm. And, and the stakes are a little higher where a big time pop star will take a more obscure fringy, culty, whatever, however you want to describe it, uh, person and, and, uh, and, and cover them. So I came up with a couple examples and I don't know if they're quite as strong as, as today's example, but I'll throw out there. And this one is very similar parallel. I would say Eric Clapton's version of uh, cocaine by JJ Kale. I did not know that was a okay. J.J. Kale, if you're going to compare anyone to Tom Waits, you know, if you're going to put anyone else in a category, maybe it's a guy like J.J. Kale ah. and Rod Stewart and Eric Clapton. I mean, not that far off, yeah. right? So it's, it's a very, very close, okay, um, you know, kind of thing. Um, now, I don't know if you know that The Tide is High by Blondie is a cover, but uh, the original version of that song was by a relatively small is certainly an international uh, uh on an international level um 
it was a Jamaican band called the Paragons, and okay. I don't think they really had any success yeah. out, outside of Jamaica at all. Wow, okay. I so, didn't know this either. No. Really super interesting to me that the guys in Blondie even knew this song. Someone would really have to know their stuff to know the Paragons mm -hmm. and maybe this song in particular. To my knowledge, and I could be wrong about this, I'd have to look it up, but I don't even know. I have the uh, the Paragons album. Mm -hmm. I don't know if, if their version was even ever released as a single. Oh, okay. So. Wow. That's, to me, extra super interesting. Um, maybe a, a real classic, and one that does turn up on these lists fairly often, the Birds version of Turn, 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 or whatever yeah. by uh, Pete Seeger, mm -hmm. right? So you're taking something from a, you know, I guess a slightly more fringy genre, you know, kind of deep folk music mm -hmm. and turning it into a big pop hit. Um, I got a couple other good ones. This one is another fairly well-known case but roberta flax killing me softly yeah it's a cover of a extremely little known uh song um what's her name laurie lieberman i think oh, who wow. originally you know singer la singer songwriter kind of played at the troubadour never really became famous yeah this you know the story goes that uh, roberta flack just heard it kind of on a total fluke and loved it and then of course there's the whole other wave, the Fugees, yeah, covering it again decades later and making it a hit all over again. Because I, I remember I did, we did, uh, I forget which song it was, but it was a cover song, and then I said, you know, famous cover songs, um, where the the cover is more popular than the original, and I said, Fugees covering Roberta Flack, and then afterwards finding out that it was Laura Lieberman, or just ah, I was wrong on the podcast, and that You're never right. happens. I've never said anything in. <laughs> That was infactual on the yeah. podcast. Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah, <laughs> yeah, sure. We can insert it. Don't worry. No one will know. I'll yeah. throw out one more for you, and then yeah. I'll and then I'll pass yeah, the mic. Sorry, as, sorry. As, as, no, as many no. as you want. Yeah. This is but, great. But um, and this one is a little more obscure, but a great example of what I'm talking about, I suppose. But um, what a man by Salt and Pepper is basically a, a cover. Oh. Um, you might argue that it's like an interpretation, but it's pretty darn close to a cover of, uh, you know, sort of a soul song uh, by a woman named uh, Linda Lindell. Let me double check that. I did write it down because I want to be sure, but I'm pretty sure it's Linda Lindell. Uh, yes, Linda Lindell. It was just, you know, released as a, a 45, just sort of a one-off single. I don't even know if uh, Linda Lindell ever recorded a, a full-length album. But uh, so, you know, not well-known, you know, pretty ob obscure figure, of course. And, uh, you know, salt and Pepper had a bunch of hits. That might have been their biggest one, though. That was a big old hit. Yeah. Uh, so, and, you know, certainly another case where um, songs you didn't know were, were covers. Mm -hmm. And super interesting that... Uh, you know, this one sort of turns the tables a little bit in that, you know, we're talking about what was like, you know, kind of a, a soul song, fairly sort of, you know, mainstream in its presentation, but then here's a hip hop group doing it. That in itself is a bit of a rarity, a, a, you know, a hip hop group kind of taking on a cover. Mm. And, uh, but uh, nevertheless, at this point in their career, Salt and Pepper, they were, they were big pop stars, yeah. you know, very well established. And, and like I said, they, they turned that into a big hit. So that was the first thing that popped into mind for me was, um, again, I don't know if it's the exact right word, but fringier artists being brought into the mainstream with a, a cover because that doesn't happen a lot. In fact, those were really the only examples of that that I could find. I'm sure there are more. And if anyone 
can think of more, I'd love to hear them because this is the sort of thing that really excites me. Yeah. Right into the right. Please, someone write us. Yes. Please, someone tell us. Drop something. us a line. Yeah. But it, it's really cool because there's all sorts of like musical gems out there that no one knows about. Like, or sorry, I, I shouldn't say no one, but there it's not as well known. And and then these pop stars are are bringing them out to the forefront and. The, Sometimes these artists can gain a second life because of it. Now, in the early days of rock and roll, this happened all oh, the yeah. time, of course, yeah. right? So you think like Elvis doing – well, practically every song Elvis did in the early days of his career was a cover of a, of a song recorded by some lesser known, usually a blues uh, artist, mm-hmm. you know, or R&B artist or, or something like that. Um, but, uh, but I digress. I got to say, this is a big moment for me. Just as a radio listener, because Rich Fry does the, is it called The Drive? Drive, yeah. From about, is it 3 to 7? Yeah. Okay, so 3 to 7 on CBC Radio 2. And I would listen to it around, I think, is it around 6 o'clock that you would do the deep dive, like yeah. on a Friday? Or yeah, right. Yeah, okay. last hour of the show. Last Friday. hour of the show. And it'd be this deep dive. And it was my favorite part. Oh, yeah. And so... Well, the stories. Oh, it's great. And so... Even if I was having a bad day at work and I knew I had to be leaving at six to go home, but I knew I could get this. And that was like my favorite part of the show. So I always wanted to find these deep dives. Like, so mm-hmm. the one day you did a deep dive on a Tragically Hip album because mm-hmm. you did every album. That's right. And so it was on Phantom Power and I was didn't want to come out of the car because I knew I wouldn't be able to find it because I'm like, there's got to be. So I go online, Rich to Fry deep dives, like they're not available. Yeah. I want like, you know, maybe a box set. Yeah, great for me, for me personally, or for the world. But we just got our own personal deep dive. Yeah, which is fantastic. Yeah, man. Yeah. yeah. So that leads to my couple <laughs> songs. I may be jumping on Frank's toes here, maybe, but because we think similarly, and this was the easiest way to do this. Was yep. originally I was thinking of train songs, but then I thought of songs. That were like the vibe in Tom Waits, but then were covered so that they were kind of cheesier. Okay. But I couldn't, I, yeah, it wasn't coming up for me. So I ended up thinking of a couple train songs that were so similar. Because okay. we were 12, I only have like three. Yeah. Okay. So the, the most obvious one for me is Downbound Train by Bruce Springsteen, because it sounds so similar, Downbound right. instead of Downtown. Yeah. And, there's that longing and depression within the song that is a kind of in the Tom Waits song. Well, there's something more joyous even in the Tom Waits version compared to the Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. But thinking of Rod Stewart's cover, and it's very Rod Stewart, this is almost like Bruce Springsteen going more Bruce Springsteen than than usual to me in the song. Like sometimes he he mutters his lines in a way that Ben Stiller would imitate Bruce Springsteen. So oh, yeah. I like the song. And uh, so that was one. There was another one called Downbound Train by Chuck Berry, which was about the devil taking a guy to hell. Okay. And then there was another one called Night Train. Yeah. There's a Bruce Coburn one, which I love, but I went with the James Brown version because it's a bit more upbeat. Yeah. So I went straight uh, planes, trains, and automobiles. That's the theme of my, my, uh, well, it's modes of transportation. Uh, Bicycle Race by Queen. This has nothing to do with any sort of feel. It's just, this is the theme. Modes of transport. Modes of transportation. Perfect. Fast Car by Tracy Chapman. Excellent. Oh, that's depressing. Oh, I know, right? Okay. That's okay. <laughs> Midnight Train to Georgia. 
Gladys Knight in the Pits. Very good. Uh, Pink Cadillac, Bruce Springsteen. Mm. Runaway Train, Soul Asylum. Aeroplane by Bjork. Get Out of My Dreams, Get Into My Car by Billy Ocean. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And then we are going to finish it off with Hands by Jewel. Oh, no. No. You don't, that's not funny. And uh, no, you don't walk in your hands somewhere. No, not funny. Okay. No. Okay. Well, we won't put Jewel on. We'll put Train in Vain by The Clash. Okay, good. Oh. Yeah, that's a good call. We haven't talked about another iconic performer we bring up most episodes. The patron saint of uh, Bill and Frank's guilt-free pleasures. Yeah. Rich, your opinion. Could Michael Bolton sing this song? Mm. Oh, uh, Downtown Train. Yes, I think so. I think so, too. I, I feel like I didn't even need to think about it long. I can hear it in his voice almost oh yeah. immediately. Oh, yeah. Especially at the end, like after that bridge, that when, when he's uh, just repeating the chorus at the end, and he just sort of brings it up. That's when Michael Bolton destroys the world, though, where he goes full Bolton yeah. and just ends the world. Oh, yeah. yeah. And Michael Bolton in 1989 is is a is that is that when oh, we this, got this his... is right in the that's right in the meat of the Michael Bolton sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, I I have in front of me here the the Grammys uh, for best uh, uh, male pop vocal performance because Downtown Train was nominated in 1991, lost to Roy Orbison's uh, Pretty Woman. But uh, Michael Bolton was on that list, Georgia on my mind. The year before, Michael Bolton won for How Am I Supposed to Live Without You. The subsequent year, Michael Bolton wins, 1992, for When a Man Loves a Woman. Right. How could he not? But I'm looking at the list of the songs that were nominated in 91. Oh my goodness, how do you pick? So Roy Orbison wins for Pretty Woman. Another Day in Paradise, Phil Collins. Georgia on my mind, Michael Bolton. I don't have the heart, James Ingram, who's critically underappreciated in my mind. Stormfront by Billy Joel, and then Downtown Train by Rod Stewart. 1991? 1991. I thought this song came out in 89. Uh, I, think it was, I think it was released in 90. Oh, right, because they would release yeah. it for so long. I and got and the Grammys long. are off and, you know, yeah, a the little next, oh, yeah, higher, next year. Right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So this comes out in 1990. Oh, wow. I got to re- rethink about how I heard the song for the first time. I'm 14 then. It's yeah, a whole other a, world. That's a different world. Anyways, yeah, 100%. This could have been a Michael Bolton song. Could this be a Hallmark movie? It could easily become a creepy Hallmark movie. Hallmark After Dark. <laughs> <laughs> Does Hallmark do creepy movies? Um. Yeah, I don't like them. I mean, you know, there's some sort of romance, obviously, at the heart of this thing so from that standpoint like i said if you went with the interpretation i've had where the third verse comes along you think oh wait a minute maybe these people maybe these two know each other maybe it's the early days of a relationship or something you know in which case maybe but uh i'm i'm with you in that uh you know it's it's more uh you know scorsese uh, taxi driver vibes than hallmark (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I don't think that downtown train is taking them out to the country to like no, find themselves. No, exactly. Yeah. And if a Hallmark movie set in New York, you know, it's like Upper West Side, not Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> um, what other categories do we have? 
You know, I just thought off the top of my head when I was listening to the ending that you could do a pretty good floor routine to this song with a that final moment. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, with the, with the thing with oh, the, the rhythmic with gymnastics. The, yeah, yeah, rhythmic gymnastics would work, especially at the final moments where yeah. everyone's watching the, the final sway. And you're thinking just based on the gestures I'm seeing here, the ribbon. Yeah, yeah. it's all ribbon. Okay, yeah. all ribbon all yeah. the time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Maybe some leaping. Maybe, yeah. Could be, yeah. I, I don't know why I do this on a podcast, but I'm, yeah. I sometimes will if talk you can see, with my if hands. If you can see Bill yeah. right now, he's, he's rhythmically <laughs> flailing yeah. his arms yeah, yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, On a downtown train, all my dreams fall like rain. On a downtown train. So we're bringing the, uh, the episode to a close, and Rich, we just... Yeah, thanks so much for for bringing uh, bringing yourself and your your knowledge and uh, insight, uh, not just to the song, but musically in general, and most especially telling us what a bridge is. So that uh, that ended a uh, over a year long debate. I almost in our hate minds. to ruin it for you, but this was fun. Have uh, you know have me by again sometime? I'd love to. This would be fantastic. Yeah, yeah. and uh, we want to um, thank the listeners for sticking it out right to the end. And, um, you know, we, you know, you have it on your phones and on your computers and all that other sort of stuff. And you listen to it, uh, to the podcast, wherever you are. And, uh, just wondering, will we see you tonight on a downtown train? Thank you for listening to Bill and Frank's Guilt-Free Pleasures. 